This is Cinema Degeneration. <laughs> no. Why? why? Why is that funny? Look, look. You came to me to find out how guys like Mike and Chucky and Freddie do what they do, not why. say that if you want to escape reality, all you really have to do is pick up a good book. Why don't we just take it from the top, okay? It all started with the book. One minute I was reading about it, and the next minute he was standing right next to me. But when the escape becomes an obsession... I'm happy to read this crap. stop. It is the return to reality that becomes the challenge. Why would anybody do such a thing? Because he thinks that it will please me. Lovely. What is happening to you? Damn it, Richard, listen to me. I'm telling you, there's going to be another killing tonight. You can't stake out every building in the city based on some uh, cryptic passage from a 30-year-old novel. Boy, down. Hi, Madman. Read any good books lately? Alrighty, folks. Welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration. And we are serving up some single-serving slashers for you. Still here in the foul year of our lore, 2022 in October. We're... <laughs> yes, foul year of our lord. Yeah, I went there. <laughs> but we are bringing up you up an, an oddity. This is one that gets rarely talked about and rarely brought up, even with slashers and horror in general. We're going to be talking some I Mad Man from 1989, directed by Tibber Takis. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I'm probably butchering it, but Close he, but uh, yeah, he brought us the gates, uh, the gate part one and two. So he is a horror director in good standing, as far as I'm concerned. But joining me in my cohort in crime this evening is Corey Dawson from Without Warning. How are we doing? I'm doing good, man. Uh, th this was a this was a sublime time for me. I it hit so many notes that I wasn't expecting. Uh, I had a great a great rollicking time with this. Now, uh, now I already know this because we've discussed this off the air. But you can tell the people at home uh, a little bit about the. Well, I usually ask people, what was your impressions the first time you watched this? But this was a first time watch for you, was it not? It was a first time watch for me because I honestly can't stand that actress. As a whole. <laughs> I don't like her. I don't like her delivery. I think she's very, she's got a very unusual look that is, 
it's difficult to pin down, but she's definitely pretty. She's alluring. But then mm-hmm. when she opens her trap, it's when she opens her mouth and starts speaking. And it drives me crazy. <laughs> I, think, I think Near Dark did it. And then she was in uh, she was in the uh, Michael Caine movie, uh, Shock to the System, and a couple of other things. And whenever she comes on screen, it's like, ah, oh, damn it. Because she's got this weird, cloying sort of... I'm not even sure what you'd call it. However, in this movie, because there's a a shift between like a fictional, I guess you'd say like 40s or like fit, it may have been like late. It may actually be closer to the 1960s, but I think it's like I think 50, it was it took place in 1959, if I remember correctly. Okay, 59. And yeah, now you say that I remember because uh, when the hotel the hotel bellboy guy lifts up the Hollywood Reporter. I actually looked up a couple of 1959 Hollywood reporters to make sure that that looked the same because, as far as I can tell, they haven't changed the way that looks in, for decades. So I, no, I don't made, think they have. <laughs> I think they. I, I thought he was using like a modern day one instead, but it wasn't. Like that's exactly the way it looked. So that kind of blew my mind. But having her shift from one to the other, uh, it was seamless for me. And I think that when you have a movie when there is that sort of like Things things happen in the old days, but and and now it's updated for the new days. I think that right, it's, right. I think it's so jarring most of the time that I don't think it it actually irritates me. I, I don't like when that happens. So this one was a little bit more seamless when it came to that. You could tell that it was more of a modern day thing uh, when she when it wasn't uh, sort of like the fictional aspect, um, but. It was such a soft transition. Yeah, the transitions in between the, those uh, sequences were done pretty well and pretty slick. Because if you fucked it up, if you made it too soft, people might get confused about who it was. So I was watching it with Lucy, my 11-year-old, and because I, I just I watched like half of it the other day, and then I thought she might actually enjoy it, so I watched it with her, and I, I thought... I think that this is just around where she could be do where she could be because I don't think it was so gory that she couldn't deal with it. So we ended up watching it and I think that it was perfect because it sort of has that like comic booky like all I could think about when I was watching it is how the color palette was so Tales from the Crypt. Oh yeah, it was totally easy comics. Oh yeah. I mean like as 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 sure as shit, it is totally EC all the way. Yeah, you could almost p- picture the Crypt Keeper coming up and introducing this fucker. <laughs> yeah, this one's called I Madman. You know, I can't, I can't quite do the Crypt Keeper, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, that was better than I can do, so I'll, I'll let you take it. I'll let you take it. All right, well, before we get too deep into the movie, let me go ahead and give the folks at home the quick IMDb synopsis. Which is as follows. All right, I Madman, 1989. A bookshop clerk and a wannabe actress start seeing the disfigured killer from her 1950s pulp novels come to life and start killing people around her. She tries to convince her cop boyfriend, but to no avail. Now, I don't know who wrote that, but that's lazy. That's lazy (laughs) as hell. She tries to convince her cop boyfriend, but to no avail. And maybe we can talk about this cop boyfriend. I mean, we don't have to talk about this in a linear fashion. We can pick it apart bit by bit but okay i I hate the richard character 
uh, Clayton Rorner, Rorner that plays him, he's he's been in a bunch of shit. He's been in The Destroyer with Lyle Alzado. He was in April Fool's Day. He was in a God, he was in another horror movie that I just watched here recently, but I can't remember the name of it. Like he's a good actor, but damn it. I hate the character. The guy is such a gaslighting douchebag and like, oh, you're reading this shit again. You know? Gonna say, because I kept looking at Lucy, I was like, why in the fuck does he care? so much about what the hell she's reading i think they may have said like okay this guy has to be the ultimate skeptic he's a detective he's all about facts he has to be an ultimate skeptic so i think that he read that as complete fucking asshole because at some point it's like can't you read into what i was i was dying for him to look at her and go so wait are you saying that there's someone out there who's using this as inspiration he never said that once you would think that no. it's detective mind at some point he does say copycat but it was like way further in the game but you would think as a detective he'd be like okay i cannot fucking deny all these connections so there's someone who's taking inspiration from this and what you're saying might actually help me sort of figure out what he's going to do ahead of time he never ever had that he was skeptical of her from from fucking beat one and all that that's why I thought the ending, the where he kind of pops up to save the day, you know, was done so heavy-handed in a way. And like I, lo- I love the movie. I love, I love this movie a lot. But his character to me is just the straight-up fucking. Uh, he's the MVP for douchebag boyfriend of the year award. Yeah, douche. Like douche was the gigantic word that was like, that was like the neon sign, kind of like the hotel sign, the room sign. <laughs> <laughs> It was flashing in my head about this guy. Like, I think the only redeeming quality, <clears throat> even though it sort of didn't make any sense, you know, I thought it was weird. I, Lucy wasn't exactly the person to talk to about this, but I kind of I was looking at the way they sort of acted around each other, and I was like, she's complaining to her Betty Rubble, uh, be costumed fucking partner Mona, at the at the thing about. How she thinks it's like a pre-marriage, like a, a lead up to, to popping the question. And he says, they say I love you all over the place. And she totally like fawns over him. But then she acts like she doesn't want to like go like do the deed with him. Right, right. So so I was like, I don't really understand their relationship. It, may, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But he uh, and also, man, for as hard boiled as that fucker is, he's way too young. There's no <laughs> on earth because it's like I would have loved it as if at some point, like one of the old grizzled dudes in the precinct would have looked at him and said, black tie, brown raincoat or a brown trench coat. It's like, hey, my camera. Watch the whole <laughs> real because but I like think P- but, Peter Falk called, said he wants his costume back. <laughs> Peter Sellers called and he said he wants Peter Falk's costume back. Um, but I do think but I do think that he does serve one important purpose I think that he allows for that transition from 59 to 89 because he looks he looks so old school but not in like a caricature type of way right right yeah he does but I think he kind of allows for that and then like even the piano uh, the piano guy across the way that's very rear window so I think that they somehow manage to keep you in this state you don't get jarred back into mark uh mod- how you say that? modern 
modernity? Yeah, modernity. You don't get jarred back into modernity whenever you whenever they transition from from uh, Anne. It's Anne, isn't it? Anne well, Temple. A- Anna. Oh God, was how was her name? It was Anna. Uh, well, her, her real name was Virginia, but Anna Templer or Templer Templer. Yeah, Anna Templer. Which I think that's also like a callback to Simon Templer and the Saint books and stuff. Because I mean, okay, gentle listeners, uh, this is all about books. Which, like, in hindsight, I am the perfect fucker to be talking with you about this. I thought I was surprised when. Well, I wasn't surprised when you picked it, but I was very surprised though when you uh, said you had never seen it up until now. But knowing that you don't care for the the lead actress that much, I under, understand that. I mean, I got people I avoid in movies too. I got you know I can't stand uh, Tilda Swinton. I can't stand Will Ferrell. You know, I like movies despite the fact that they're in them. Yeah, yeah. But but I have to say, uh, and if she if somehow she's listening to this, I'd have to say that I'm. I'm definitely wrong because somehow she fits perfectly into this one. I guess I think this is her best role, her best role. Yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Like I didn't, um, cringe is the, the word that I, that I'm thinking of. I don't know what it is, but like in near, like I was talking about near dark, I was hoping so bad that Lance Henriksen would end up fucking decapitating her or not. I just (laughs) not stand her. I can't stand her manner in most stuff, but in this one, The only th- I think the only thing that would have exercised the demon forever would have been if um, if she would have pulled a Linda, Linda Hamilton at the end of this. Or I guess you could also say, because in the end, it's a sort of like child's play where she's sort of where like the detective is there and he thinks he's going to say it. But then he's like he's uh, put down and then she has to make the moves. And then, you know, of course, uh, the little kid does. But I think in this, it would have been so much better, even though she sort of makes it happen kind of sort of yeah yeah she she opens the doorway for things to happen you know i uh it's funny um but yeah but, but I'll, I'll go i'll get back to that in a second but um i love the opening for this movie too though by the way i have to say like when it opens up in 1959 with the when they actually show dr kessler slash malcolm brand you know, his full face before he, like, disfigures himself. He looks like fucking Nosferatu. Oh, man, I could not agree more. All I could think of was, this is like if Max Schreck played Phantom of the Opera. There were so many, there were so many things. I thought he was great. I thought Dr. Kessler slash uh, Malcolm Brand was so great because he does that thing that I love where you have this feeling, this iconic feeling from the character, and you're like, hey, this is a brand new character. He's barely even been introduced yet. Why is this striking so hard? And if you look real close, you're like, okay, well, his eyes look like Max Shrek, and then he sort of has the shadow. He sort of has... Yes, it's kind of like the Phantom almost. Yeah, yeah. So it's like Family Opera, the Shadow, Nosferatu. So then also you have like Dark Man in the back of your head too. So yeah, then, yeah. that rationale, well, that rationale, when you were talking about like some of the shots and some of the moves were so awesome, one of the big things that struck me 
uh, was they were making some pans and they were making some moves, camera moves, cinematography, uh, cinematographical moves. That all I could think of was, man, this is like in, in the purview of sort of like Cohen, Ramey, Barry Sonnenfeld, where yeah. like taking yeah. these huge like rack zooms and stuff and these other moves. And uh, when I saw when I saw Throw Him Off in the Train, I thought that Dan DeVito was like the greatest director I've ever seen. But then later on, I watched Death to Smoochie and I realized that it wasn't Danny DeVito. It was Barry Sonnenfeld. Oh, <laughs> right. Because if, if you watch if you watch Thermal from the Train and then you watch Miller's Crossing, you see that it's Barry Sonnenfeld that's that's making that uh, the pace of that. So in this, when I saw some of that stuff, I was like, man, this is it just hit so many things for me because it had that little period piece. So that great sort of like kitschy time. And then like the entire thing revolves around like the life of books and like the book life at the same time. I love that bookstore. I oh, love man. that bookstore. I was studying it. I was studying it because. They have qu- friend, questionable fucking uh, stocking and restocking uh, avenues that they, that they use to, to lazily stock a book here, stock a book there and boxes is everywhere. But it is the type of place that I just want to like go spend a whole day in and explore. Well, I have to say, if you ever make it down to my neck of the woods, there's a place that has uh, shelves just like that, like all the way to the ceiling. I rarely get out there, but it's uh, it's called the bookshelf. It's in Batesville, Indiana. And there's a trio of ladies that have taken care of that place for, for decades. And it's just piles and piles and piles. Except it's a lot better put together when it comes to like genre and stuff. But all I could think of was... They keep going on about the estate sale from Malcolm Brand's house. And on the receipt, it says there's 1,500 volumes there. And those chicks just will not take the time to talk <laughs> that stuff. And it's like, this, granted, it's a it's a decent job. But I was looking at Lucy. I said, okay, Lucy, see that shelf right there of ours? I said, yeah. It's like that, that first shelf is, there's like 25 there. There are four shelves. That's 100. I was like, so there's 16 shelves like we have right there up in that attic. That they're just like not taken care of and you would have thought that since she was trying to find out malcolm brand like what he was all about and uh what was going on with the books that she was reading by this guy because like it's changing her life you would have thought that she would have poured through that stuff for any clues she could possibly get yeah you figure she would have torn it apart bit by bit but no she never does not, not so much she has to go home and it actually seems weird that she doesn't have a cat it seems like there ought to be a cat in her apartment yeah, well, she's already got a cat at the bookstore, so maybe she has oh, enough yeah, of it. Fucking Mona. Uh, and poor Mona. She gets it really <laughs> bad. Well, everybody pretty much gets it pretty bad in this movie, but poor Mona. She just wanted some loving, and she just wanted to find Mr. Right, or at least Mr. Right now, you know, or, <laughs> or something. She totally disses that absolute sweetheart of a guy that comes rambling in, that big, roly-poly, Chris Farley-looking guy. He's the guy that's like, oh, hi, 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 Mona. Hi, hi, how you doing? And she's like, yeah, I want to kill myself. I was like, Jesus Christ, give the guy a, give him a chance. Maybe <laughs> just, he's a statue masseuse, man. You never know. Yeah, you know, just say hello and, and let him go on his way. It didn't have to be that rude. 
But then again, maybe there's a whole history. Like maybe he creeps the fuck out of her. Like you never know. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was a stalker. But uh, you know that everyone else, every single person that came in besides him, was a decrepit old fucker. And what about the guy, the, the, the old fart with the, that's buying the book that I actually wrote the title down for? Sex that, like, for swingers. Sex for swingers. <laughs> like, <laughs> who, would want, who would want to buy an old used sex manual anyways? Honestly, like, I, I'm really surprised that she didn't look up and go, good for you. <laughs> go for it. Don't break a hip now. Don't throw your hip out. Have have 911 on standby. She reminded me a lot of, uh, do you remember the girl who was sort of like the new friend of Boone's girlfriend in Nightbreed? Yes. I, I was drawing the same correlation there. Yeah, big time. Actually, I, I will have to admit, I, look, I had to look her up to make sure it wasn't even the same actress, because I thought it was for a hot second, but it wasn't. You know, I thought about doing the same thing, but I, I was really into the movie. Uh, I have to admit, I... And I honestly think that um, Dr. Kessler is because like now that I said that, you know, you got some Phantom, you got some Max Shrek, you got uh, you got all that stuff. There's even more of Dark Man because Dr. Kessler, between these two books, he's like a poet and a doctor and a madman. So he's like he's in love with his chick. So he's kind of trying to improve himself by taking pieces of other people and, and sort of making himself better through these different yeah. So there's a little bit of like the Robert England Phantom of the Opera there and Dark Man again with all of that. Yeah, I, I think we, we probably glossed over this fact, but he's like like uh, psychoing in. I always call it psychoing in instead of stalking on Virginia slash Anna because he believes that she's the character from his book, I Madman. You know, and I love the title of his other book, Much of Madness, More of Sin, and especially when Richard does the whole Much of Madness, More of Sin, and he's just like, why are you reading this crap anyway? I'm just like, fuck, <laughs> like, fuck you, dude. That sounds like a book right up my alley, douche. Hey, dude, all I know is this. As soon as he was like, because you can see there's like, there's a definite pause. It almost made me wonder if he knew what he was reading before he read that, because he was like, da 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 thee, and he was uh, dismissed from the scientific establishment and he was ridiculed but then when he decided to take the forces of nature in his own hand and and then he sort of like pauses for a second and and takes a jackal and and mixes his and mixes the seed with it and puts it in a human surrogate i was like holy fuck that's like the omen and then <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as you see kind of like the jackal boy Dude, I didn't know that he had directed the gate until I saw that. I was like, well, there's the gate. Yeah, the, the stop motion animation was very gate-like reminiscent Dude, of that. I can't even tell you how much I absolutely adore that era of that. Oh, the stop motion uh, animation? Yeah, yeah. But, but but I think that like that late 80s era of it, because then you have like the golden child in there, and you've got like Howard the Duck in there. And they all had that. And I love it. I've always loved that. Because it's like this weird... It seems like it's moving faster than your eye can see, almost. It's like almost like a blur motion right. kind and of I aesthetic to it. Really it really works. I think it really works. The only time it doesn't work is a couple of shots in the very ending where they go in for an extreme close-up. It kind of gets a little just choppy. Just a little bit. That, that, 
that's never what you want. You don't you don't want an extreme close up on those things. You sort of want it almost like a little bit to the side, like yeah. almost peripheral. But uh, yeah, but, for uh, the most part, I thought the effects, you know, fucking uh, aged very well for this movie, considering how low budget oh, was. Especially since I mean, wasn't his? Uh, because I don't know. You may have checked this out. I wasn't sure. Because when we were going through the the beginning credits, <coughs> said that Randall guy he had three names: Randall something something. It said that he did oh. special oh. effects and Randall William Cook. So I get I didn't check, but I assumed that he was the acting guy, the actor that she worked with. Is that who? Yeah, was? he's the a- actor that played him. But I don't. So I, yeah, because he's done uh, visual effects for all types of shit. A lot of uh, he did a lot of. Uh, uh, stuff for um, Full Moon here, like the Puppet Masters, Doctor Mordred that we talked about before. Wonderful, uh, but I but what I, all I could think of is like, okay, well, if he was playing Doctor Kessler, those facial applications for him, like totally doing that three quarter profile, like going out the door, I thought he looked sinister and great for that being like an entirely new face for that guy. It oh, did, yeah. It didn't look pudgy or pasty at all. I mean, well, it looked pasty because it was pasty. He had a pasty face, but it didn't look like all kind of like slapped on. Like it, it looked great and totally legitimate to me. Well, when he's sewing the various pieces on, you know, he sews on Colette's scalp, he sews on Lenny's nose. They look pretty good at first, but then as the time goes on, you can see that they're, they're showing infection. I love it. That is such a that is such a detail, man. Well, you like, know, like the nose starts to slide off and kind of slide off to the side, and, and like the the swelling and the bruising that's coming into his scalp line oh, where he yeah. sews on. Oh, this this was definitely a case where I was like, this guy is paying attention to what is going on. Like he's not just going, okay, this is good enough to keep as is. We don't care them to keep making new stuff. He was definitely in this for making that look. Because it's funny, because with a movie like this, I think that there are some people who would call it cheesy, and I think that's untrue. I agree with what you said about being kind of schlocky. It's yeah, a little bit. But I wouldn't call it cheesy, though. I think that sometimes it's deadly earnest. Oh, yeah. What's going it, on. It's, just, it's only, you know, uh, cheesy, maybe like not in the execution. I'm not, I'm not sure what the term is that I'm looking for here. I'm having a brain fart. <laughs> it's all right, but I, but I I honestly believe, like I could not have been more pleased with this because I I honestly did not. I thought it was just gonna be like a flippant thing with the sort of like the literary aspect of it, but then she goes to see like the um, the vanity publisher guy, and he he was actually in a um, I think it was in a, like a Ray Bradbury theater or Alfred Hitchcock presents. And I always get him mixed up with the Charmin guy, but it's not the same guy. But it's he sort of has the same thing as the Charmin guy. Yeah, Murray Rubin. He he's he's one of those guys that's been in a little bit of everything. He's been in everything from fucking Seinfeld to like a bunch of fucking TV stuff. He was the guy that I recognized him immediately. That he was the guy in the elevator in the uh, Ghostbusters. He's the guy that's like that must oh, be some. Yeah, that must be some cockroach. Watch your head off, man. Yeah, I, I didn't pick up on that, but that is absolutely right. But 
it really gave me the impression of um, the little distributor guy that Ed Wood goes to see in Ed Wood. Oh, yeah. He's like, I deal in smut. That's all I got. And he takes one look at our actors that uh, Jenny Wright plays, uh, you know, uh, Virginia. And he's just like, listen, honey, like, you're not going to do around here. He's like, I only deal in smut. It was so funny because when it, when she starts, like, scanning the covers on the wall in there, which they're really well made. I mean, that that's even a detail where I was like, man, they really tried in this production. Like, they really tried hard because they look totally legit. Now, I got to ask you a question. Did it pain you as much as it pained me to see just how many books they destroyed making this movie? Yeah, I couldn't help it. Uh, Even some of the ones where I think there were some where they destroyed them just to make sure they didn't have to pay royalties on some. Mm-hmm. Some of the some of the uh, the Alice's like human body, you could tell that they had ripped part of the spine off because it was like an old book. And they just ripped the spine off so they, so they wouldn't have to pay a couple of things to the publishers and shit. And then yeah, so I mean, of course, I was I wasn't like no. The the, the most gut wrenching scene of this movie. And you, I'm not sure if you'll agree with me on the, this, or many people would, but it's like when uh, Virginia spills her coffee all <laughs> over the book, and it's like, oh, first edition Hemingway, oh well. Like I was like, oh, first yeah, edition. See, I, I think that the only, I think that the only reason why I didn't cringe, I was actually cringing at the stuff because she said like, oh, first edition Hemingway, and it was like right there. She totally tossed that coffee forward over a bunch of different things. So mm-hmm. the first edition of Hemingway, she got eight other things and I was much more interested in what the other ones were. I've never had <laughs> a Hemingway book in my life. You know what though? I did catch that one of them had on the cover was a John Saul book. There you go. I mean, that's gotta be, they would, they would have to, because I mean, in a bookstore, John Saul, you're always going to find a big pile of them. Because I think that he hit big fast during kind of like the King years. And then as far as I know, like nobody reads him anymore. A lot of stuff piled up. You'll, you'll constantly see that out. And I'm not so sure it's warranted. I'm hoping that he has like a renaissance someday. Uh, but um, I, I'm, I'm the guy who's constantly trying to pause it to see like titles and stuff. And I think in that store, they had a lot of stuff that was like paper out. Yeah, like, yeah. A lot of what was going on there. So it may have just been like a bunch of textbooks and cookbooks and whatnot, but uh, I I was looking around to see if that was a real store because I found an article that actually had a guy who was going around to all the locations in the movie, but for some reason he didn't go to the fucking bookstore. So I don't know what happened there. I don't know if they if it's been changed or they tore it down or what happened. Uh, I don't know. A used, a used bookstore in L.A. probably didn't survive very long. At least not that, that, that probably uh, in that location. I'm sure. I think the last bookstore is the only one that, or uh, maybe like City Lights, but that's only because like the Beats, because the Beats were there and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not, you know, I I think the only reason why I don't read Hemingway is kind of the the reason why I don't read Steinbeck, I don't read Dickens a whole lot, I don't read stuff. I think it's because it's always going to be there. I don't have to worry about it going away. Right, right. With whereas with like some of the genre-based shit that I read. If you may, if you don't read it now, it may not ever come around again. It might just be like a chapbook that somebody 
self-published, you may not ever find it again. They may fall off the face of the earth. So, to me, it was just the fact that it was the, they so nonchalantly threw away a first edition Hemingway that they just like, oh, we're just going to keep a first edition Hemingway sitting right next to the cash register. Like, well, she um she she stirred what was in her thing, so I always figured it was tea. And I think that if if you had a first edition Hemingway, you'd probably be as if you worked fast, you probably just I guess that you would almost say that it would just be antiquing it even more if it was just tea. It would just sort of like put a patina on everything. I doubt that if you dried it out well enough, I doubt that it would even matter. It would probably just look totally antiqued. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was just, it was a gut wrenching scene. I, I just, my okay, heart I, sank. There was like, something that I wanted, a couple of things. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I, don't, I didn't care when Lenny died. I didn't really care when uh, Colette died with her big bad fake wig on. You know, I didn't feel bad for any of these people, but I felt bad for the first edition Hemingway. You know? <laughs> so now I'm going to tell you about something about my moral compass. Hey, I don't know what that is, but you know. Dude, I uh, I remember one time, it was kind of one of my big, my first big thrift experiences. I had a gigantic bag, like a garbage bag over my shoulder of books I had gotten for like five cents a piece. I, it was just like a treasure trove. And uh, a cop pulled us over and dumped all my books in the fucking mud. Oh, motherfucker, man. I hate hearing shit like that. He made me clear him up. I mean, granted, he, he, there had been a mugging that like a grandmother had been beaten really badly by somebody with long hair and dark clothes. And in the car that we were in, I was the only guy with long hair and dark clothes. So they frisked me, dumped all my shit in the mud. And then the guy was like, all right, you're, 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 you know, you're out of it. Have a nice night. And I was like, hey, uh, what about all my fucking books that you dumped in the mud? He was like, put them back in the bags and leave, I guess. What a dick. Say, I was a like, total dick move. Uh, but if you look around her, I think that I had to benefit because I watched half of it and then I watched that half that I watched again with Lucy and then watched the rest of it. Uh, did you take a good look around her apartment? There's some yeah. weird shit in her apartment. I made a note here at one point. I'm like, you know, the, the weird misplaced roses, the marionette puppet, the single Christmas stocking that was hanging from her. Well, well it was just every, every once in a while, there was a little Christmas decoration here and there. So I don't know if that meant that this is like February or March. But they just hadn't taken that shit down yet. Because there was like an only lonely like tinsel thing across the bulletin board in the cop shop. Oh, see, I, I didn't was, notice that. I was like, Lucy, why does she have the fucking why is why is that stocking up? What month is it? Because she didn't have a Christmas tree, but she had a stocking. So that was really weird. However, the weirdest thing that I saw, her ashtray was a dental mold of a lower jaw. Really? Fucking A. I looked at it, I was like, wait. Is that, are those teeth? And I looked, uh, and uh, at one point it was like further away in the room. And I was like, Lucy, look. And she's like, that's a jaw. And I was like, yeah, that's a fucking jaw. What? Uh, 
Huh, makes me like, wonder who decorated that place. I never, I never heard her say anything about having been like a dental hygienist or something or whatever. I don't know, but there was, because like you said, I, I saw the, um, I didn't know it was a marionette. I thought it was like a ventriloquist dummy. So I was looking around. Oh, maybe it was. I was like, who is this chick? Uh, she's definitely a little weird. <laughs> yeah, she's. I mean, and also I, I was talking to her. I was like. Does she have a? Does she sleep on a bed? Is there a couch a couch bed? Like, what's going on here? And and this movie has another trope in it too that I have to say. But speaking of beds and things like that, weird movie fucking. Once, I, I, as I always put it, like every time I see it in a movie, weird mo- movie fucking is just plain weird because the the way they like they go through coitus, as you can say, like on the couch, is some of the most awkward fucking movie lovemaking that I've ever seen in my life. I mean, what about that random doggy style that was happening? <laughs> that was just... I'm not even sure she was like disrobed. It was no. weird. I, I agree with you. Yeah, like I said, random movie fucking, weird movie fucking is just weird. I think the strangest, I think the strangest part was, of course, since I'm with Lucy, every once in a while, I'm like, Okay, Lucy, you probably need to close your eyes in a second here. But then nothing really happened. Yeah, there's real, there's no nudity in it, and it's just a lot of kind of heavy petting and stuff. It's it's very PG-13. In fact, I don't really yeah, I know other sure. than... I was going to say, I, I thought for sure she was going to, like, tweak his nipple because she was going <laughs> to mess with his shirt. But then that didn't happen. And then she, like, started, goes for the zipper. But then it was weird. It was yeah. weird. It was weird. It was very awkward. It was very weird. Made me uncomfortable. <laughs> I didn't like that. I didn't like that part. But I have to say, and the one part I did like was uh, when we the 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 piano restore repair and restoration thing is called Vincent Brothers, and I have to say, this movie to me now this goes back to something that we've done is very much borrows heavily from the Vincent Price era of horror. And I kind of thought the yeah. fact that they called it Vincent Brothers had to be a definite wink and nod to Vincent Price. Uh, it just had to be. And if it wasn't, that they say that it wasn't, you know, I'd have to call them out on it and say they're lying. Um, there was another thing that I meant to mention along with when I was talking about like Ramey and Cohen and stuff. Uh, I had a real crime wave feeling, especially in the hotel. Oh, yeah. The shadow, and it might be because like, in Crime Wave, they were totally trying to make it like a comic strip. I think there's a lot of that sentiment in this with like the shadows and because it doesn't go into noir uh, territory because everything's so colorful. But they really make use of shadow in this movie like big fucking time. Where like somebody will be in a doorway and then like their eyes will just be lit and they have the cast of like the, uh, the blinds all over their face and stuff. Uh, And it's like when uh, Kessler uh, or uh, Brand, you know, uh, is enters and exits through scenes. It's almost like he's always shown in a silhouette at least once before he's finally revealed. You know, every time as he's sewing the different parts on, you know, as he's stealing the body parts from everybody, is just like he's always going to be shown in a shadow and a silhouette. You know, it's really well shot. I mean, kudos go out, uh, out to the cinematographer on this one for sure. Yeah, uh, I um, I was gonna say I, I thought it was so interesting that he was taking parts from like both sexes. I thought yeah. that was fascinating the way that he was doing that to try to kind of like improve himself, like make himself into an Adonis. But um, 
Oh, poor Colette. She lost that magnificent mane of red hair. Hey, man, I have to admit, I thought she was dynamite looking. Wig or no wig. I thought it really worked. Well, I meant with the, the wig, the bad wig on Colette was when they were doing the kind of the, 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 the flashback. Yeah. yeah, the Hamlet kind of thing. That, that was such a bad wig. Actually, I think it was supposed to be, it may have been Othello, now that I think. I can't tell. I can't tell. I can't. I can't remember actually. But there was. A, I had a. I had a little bit of a theory about something. In yeah. the in the piano repairman death scene, I thought that there were there were a couple of moments where they may have been Bram Stoker draculing the shadow on the shade, because it seemed like the lighting was a little kind of wrong, where he was sitting by the piano to make that. And I was watching him move, and I was watching the shadow move, and I think they might have been off sync. Oh. Have had someone because the projection of like the backlighting would have had to have been too strong to look realistic. I think they may have had someone standing in a different spot that would make the shadow on the thing until Brand came in, and then it was and then it was right. They were able to backlight it properly because because he was so big and he had the cloak and stuff. He kind of took up more space, so there wouldn't be like a light. Uh, there wouldn't be like a J.J. Abrams thing. Yeah, and that poor fucker, the, the poor fucking p- piano guy, he would he had nothing to do with this entire situation. He just happened to be playing the piano when you know Brand was entering her room, and he's just like, "Well, I'm just going to go slice this motherfucker's ears off next." Well, I, I slightly disagree with that because if you think about it, whose ears would you want? Someone who tunes a piano? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can understand why Brand wants it, but I just felt like he wasn't involved with the situation. You know, he wasn't a a friend of hers. He wasn't a, a confidant or a, an acting friend or, you know, a work friend. It was just like, he was just happened to be some guy that lived across the alley. So was it Malcolm Brand or Maxwell Brand? I thought it was Malcolm Brand. Okay. Because at one point I thought you said Maxwell Brand and then something occurred to me. So if it was Malcolm, then it doesn't make sense. But Maxwell Grant was one of the, um, was one of the pen names used by the guys that wrote The Shadow. And Matt um, Brand was a famous Western author. Uh, maybe it was like kind of, uh, you know, an ode to both of them. Who knows? But I, but I, but I agree with you. I think it was Malcolm, though. So that doesn't really, that doesn't really track. But I, I loved the uh, the invocation, especially since like the, the the end of it also had a little bit of like a dark half thing going. Because is it okay to like go into the end now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we can talk about the ending. When she sort of... I love the ending, but too, by the way. I love how that works out. And the fact that you drew a correlation between that and uh, the dark half uh, is a beautiful segue, sir. Hey, I, I totally thought that. Like, it totally came to me because I was thinking she invokes the jackal boy just by reading the book. So he, he, so there's this question about like, what is real? Like, since he was fucking with alchemy, like, are the books magical? Is she sort of like, when you read those things, these people come to life. So the question is, is brand real or is it actually Kessler? That was the product of brand, but they were so similar 
that Kessler being made to live brings Max brings uh, Brand back to life because she totally creates a jackal boy out of thin air just by reading the book. Right. Oh, and the jackal boy scene is so fucking magnificent when that thing fucking oh, shows oh, up. It is great, especially and you know Lucy's usually pretty quick, but she didn't say anything about the holes poked in like the tramp steamer. I thought that was a great little detail. They barely show it. Oh, yeah, yeah. When they got the holes in it so we can breathe. Breathing holes, man. Like, for- oh, shit, someone's breathing in there. And then, like, you see kind of like the light through them at one point. They show them a couple times, but but they don't linger on it. And I thought that was a very, that was an awesome little detail. But then, oh, my God, there's a total ghost moment, too, because that sort of, like, window comes down on the jackal boy and, and slices him in half. And oh, poor Jackal boy. I was like, oh, man. And then you see, like, it it phased him, but he's not down. And then he... It's just he, like an inconvenience for him. He's just like, oh, I don't have legs now. I'm still going to go attack Brand. Like, well, I'm spindly, but I have that sort of, like, that thin strength. So I'm just going to gallop over there on my arms and knock him through the window. And then pages go flying everywhere out the window. I love that. You know... When I was a kid and I saw this, I hated that. I hated that part. Like, I didn't understand it. But then again, I was like 12, 13 years old. So I don't think I was expected to understand it. As an adult, I love that. You know, like when the Jackal Boy tackles him out the window and it's just that transition from inside the building to outside and just thousands and thousands of pages just fly out the window. I thought it was so fucking, this is a chef's kiss. Well, and, you know, I I think that we've kind of, we've kind of left out a couple of the like the framework things of the story, but basically what she's reading in the book is happening in the book, and you see most of it through the lens of what she's reading in the book. But then there's this weird reality crossover where things are happening in the book and people look like who I thought it was awesome that and Lucy totally picked up on it too. She's reading the book, so then she is the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And I think that that um, that kind of does away with that weird little sort of like prophecy angle that people love to do in stories now, where it's like this person's reading the book, so of course they're the long lost descendant of the the character or the person who wrote it. Whereas in this case, she's that character because when you read something, you put a lot of yourself into like the representation in your mm-hmm. head. So I was like, dude, fucking dead on perfect with that. And <laughs> even like the part, part of, as he's like killing, you know, people like the the the, the Lenny part, you know, that he's going to kill somebody that not with Lenny's character, but more or less like with Colette's character, he's you know, showing that flashback of like, oh, like when he's reading from the book, when uh, Kessler or Brand is reading from the book and he's like, he has such a slow drawl and he's talking about. Yes, and then there was the brunette, and then the suicide blonde, and it's like the fiery redhead. And it's just like, ooh, it's so good. Yeah, man, his delivery was fucking great. I love that part. Um, that was almost it was almost at the level of like Hitchcockian when he was like, "I'll count back from one hundred and he totally goes to eighty. Like, like he totally keeps counting. Yeah. 
I thought it's he was, not like it's not like he just counts backwards and he goes like three numbers and stops. No, he counts back like from a hundred to eighty. Like. I found that very suspenseful, and also kind of like the overhead shot in the bathroom was real dial in for murder looking. The way they did that, I I think for like a little schlocky thing, this there's some elevation in this for sure. Well, and there's also a, a nice wink and a nod that I think uh, I'm sure you probably caught caught this too to Dr. Fibes when he says a clean slate and a fresh palette. And when he pulls back his, his like that, that scarf that he wears over the lower half of his face and he's missing everything from the nose on down. Oh yeah. That was just awesome. Again, great fucking makeup work. I mean, the makeup work in this is damn near perfection. You know, and you know what I, I, I'll admit, I'll admit, uh, the Fibes, uh, the piece of fives in there. They got from like the manner and the the dress and all that. Uh, but I'll be honest, it didn't occur to me uh, with him being uh, taken off of the nose like that, but. Now that you say it, it totally makes perfect sense. Well, you know, it's just to me, there's so many winks and nods to like old hammer horror films, to film noir, to the the pulp novels, to, I mean, so many winks and nods. Like you, you mentioned Hitchcock. It's very Hitchcockian at times. But, but the strange part, the strange part, because it would have been so easy to do, um, it does not hit you over the head. I think that they're hoping that people who have an interest in that stuff watch it and pick up on it because they definitely don't hit you over the head with it. The only part that I think that sort of has a little bit of that was was humor was like with like Moby's dick. Like oh. it, it was a title called Moby's dick on the wall. And uh, luckily, I don't think Lucy put two and two together on that one. But hopefully not. Hopefully not. I think that was the only part that sort of put it in your face. The rest of it was just like, okay, it's here, and it's for a movie that is like, it's so in your face about some things and really subtle about others. And I think that the stuff that it was really subtle about was almost like vital to the movie having sort of the flavor that it has, and so much so that it does not stick out. And that's like another thing with sort of like the soft transitions. There's a lot of really well weaved stuff in this movie and i i totally thought that they were going to put a question mark on the end when it says the end oh yeah 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 sure I, there was to be a question mark that popped up on that one and i can't decide whether or not i'm disappointed well you know a lot of these movies we've been covering this month and this one is no different i think it it, it left the ending open for a definite sequel because I think, you know, a movie like this could always be fucking, you know, as Charlie Bando always says, you know, every movie is just a pilot for another series, <laughs> you know? But at the same time, I'm think I'm, I'm kind of happy that there's not a sequel to this. I think it suits itself better being a standalone. Yeah, I... Um... There's actually one other little thing that I'm a little bit surprised that they didn't do. They only did it in the most 
in the smallest little way. I thought that as things went along where she started to realize that she was part of this fictional thing and fiction was part of her reality and like she had brought it into their lives and like she's a little bit responsible for these people getting killed and he's actually in love with her and she's a real person and he's in love with a fictional thing that she's become. So I thought that over time she would almost like junkify where like she would get real gaunt looking but they only did that in the very smallest amount. Like Lucy said, oh, she looks like she needs some sleep. That was about the extent of it. I thought by the yeah. end, she'd, she'd be looking like the thinner guy by the time it was all done. Because like she can't sleep, but she has to keep reading because she has to know what happens next. But when she does, then she causes it to happen. And she keeps telling this guy, like, she's lucky enough to have a detective as a boyfriend. But everything that she tells him, he thinks is the product of reading this, which it is, but in the wrong direction. Like, I think there's a lot. I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually sad that I hadn't watched this in the past, but I'm also kind of glad that I watched it now with sort of like the experience of decades of movies uh, to under my belt. Cause I may not have seen what I saw now if I had seen it, or when I saw it before, if I'd have seen it when I was younger, because I definitely right, right. thousand times working at movie gallery and blowout and all those places. I saw the cover a thousand times, but I just did not like her. And and I also got it mixed up. There's a movie with Amy Dolan's in it. And I can't remember what it is, uh, where it, it's sort of like the cover sort of looks the same. And I avoided the hell out of it. because I thought it was that because I tried to watch X-Ray. You ever try to watch X-Ray? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched X-Ray. It's been uh, some, some fucking reason, years. I just could, I could not get into it. And I, uh, I was definitely major league surprised and pleased, and uh, I am so glad I was wrong about that whole situation. It was just great. I honestly don't, I wouldn't want to see another person doing it except for her, which is good. I never thought in a million years I'd be saying that. I think that you could do, you could probably switch up, um, what was his name? Richard Chandler or something? Channing? Ooh, that plays the, uh, I think his character was called like Detective Richard Channing, I think. I think it was Channing. I know his name was Richard, but I think the last name was Channing. Yeah. So I, I think that he, you could probably, I actually think that you would have done better to maybe gone slightly older with that guy. He just seemed too young to be that grizzled. Like you said, he just seemed too young to be quite that, uh, quite that seasoned at that time. Had If you could have had somebody that would have had a little bit of the same flavor in his look, um, maybe like a James Brolin or something, he wouldn't have been so yeah, out, of, yeah. out of her league, but he would have been a little bit more weathered and, and all that. Uh, but I think that overall his character isn't this gigantic access character necessarily. I think he was just there to kind of lend that flavor of the dickhead sort of like the man's best friend, like dickhead boyfriend doesn't like skeptical guy, um, which I just showed man's best friend to, to, uh, I had that, uh, that, uh, three movie, thing i sort of have this I, I hate calling it like an instructional thing or like an educational thing but i have a friend over and i go okay i'm gonna show you three movies you haven't seen and i played intruder 
man's best friend. And I can't remember what the third one was. I want it to be Funhouse, but for some reason, it, it that never happens. So maybe that'll be part of the next one. But if Man's I, Best Friend is is a good movie. I, I think it gets unjustly shit on as just being a B movie, but I think it's pretty fucking good. Uh, it's got heart. When when a B movie has heart, I think that that elevates it. There's definitely heart in there. And it's got Lance Henderson too, so it's definitely at least gets one thumb up for me. Sure, absolutely. I wish, uh, you know what I have to say, in all honesty, like if someone were to say, hey, um, what if I, Madman, had uh, Lance Henriksen as Dr. Kessler? I think I would say no. Because there was something about this guy's eyes just sold the shit out of it. I don't know what he did with the eye, the contacts or whatever. His eyes are just mesmerizing in this movie. So are those eyebrows, too. And the eyebrows, which I... I, (laughs) I'm happy to say that uh, in about 20 years, I'm going to have those damn eyebrows. Oh, shit. I'll be ahead of you. I'll probably have them in about five years if I don't Some, start tri- trimming right away. Somehow I uh, somehow I inherited the, the eyebrows of a 70-year-old English barrister. I don't know exactly what happened there. Luck? But luck, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely rate this super highly. I think that the entire style of the whole thing, uh, people will say, oh, it's a pulp throwback. I, I disagree. I don't think it's a throwback at all. I think it's totally in the midst of all of that. There's no reason to say that this isn't a, a tri- like a dyed-in-the-wool pulp story. EC Comics, like flat out. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I, I, I agree 110%, man. But uh, that being said, do you want to get into our final thoughts and ratings on this sucker? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I was so, I was entranced because, like, there's a little bit of humor. There's enough violence. It's not so violent that the only thing that people would say was that there was violence involved. There's a lot of style, but it ends up not being, like, artificial. There's a lot of heart. You can tell people paid attention what was going on so like basically this was a complete home run like it was a knock out of the park for me because i could kick myself for not having watched it before but i'm kind of glad i didn't because i've i picked up on so many things that i probably wouldn't have picked up on before when i was younger and would have seen it then and um at the risk of making this sound like the ultimate end-all beat-all movie it's not the ultimate end-all beat-all movie but it surprised me in so many ways. And there were so many intelligent things that were done. And I mean, let's not split hairs. Brass tacks, books are at the heart of this entire thing. It has everything to do with being transported into a story, having the story being transported into you, art, art imitating life, life imitating art. Like it has all of that there, along with an incredibly iconic, or at least iconic <laughs> People who have seen it, that is. It wouldn't go iconic like all over. But if you've seen it, I doubt you're going to forget this guy. Oh, no. I, I, I dare anybody to see, say, see this movie. They might forget the movie, but they're not going to forget him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I think I told you one time that I went and uh, at this Comic-Con, this guy had this 
complete scrapbook of of little art pieces that he he did and it was nothing but horror and science fiction like villains and i told him i said hey you know can i get a can i get a deal on some of your art if i can name all the ones in the scrapbook and he was like there's like 260 in there so yeah i'll give you a deal if you can do them all and i think i did them all except for like two and I, <laughs> it's still pretty good and i believe that one of the ones that i didn't get was dr kessler so oh I to, damn so i have to say um i was just so pleased with this in every in every way it was surprising it changed my mind ended up having a lot of aspects that i wouldn't have believed they could pull off so seamlessly i thought the ending was completely wonderful i loved it that they never truly came up with the ironclad explanation as to why things were able to happen the way they were but they gave you a couple little ideas and hints here and there for you to kind of piece your own thing together they obviously use use place like chinese theater was in the background at one point so you know they're using like full-on real areas and that one article like pointed them all out that you could go see them yourself and all this stuff uh the cinematography was awesome the special effects were killer i love the the gate-esque like uh effects that we were talking about um i don't think i think the only thing i mean if someone were to ask me what i would take out of it i'd have to say it's that clayton guy it was just weird that originally you know we were going to do april fool's day and then we did this and that's that same fucking guy <laughs> at least at least in april fool's day like his his assholishness kind of made a little more sense he was a little bit more charming So, so what's your what's your rating again? One one to ten. I don't think you gave your your rating. Um, I I am so tempted to give it a ten, uh, but I I think that I'll probably just give it a nine because I I think that there were things that I could change. There were a couple of things could be updated. There were a couple of um things that were limited by when it came out. So I think I'll how about nine point five? I'll give it a nine point five. I'll take point five off just. For, for little surface surface uh, blemishes. I can see, I can see that. Uh, you're coming in a lot higher than I thought you would have. I thought I would have been the one coming in higher on this one for some reason, but I'm glad you, it made that kind of impression on you. But I, I agree with everything that you've said here. It's 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 almost perfect. It's about as perfect a, a, as a movie as this ill can be for, for 1989. I mean, let's face it, slashers were kind of not becoming they were becoming not the fad not the norm and by 1989 and if they were they were cut all to hell they were just you know edited up one end and down the other sliced to hell by the mpaa but this movie just i think it's a, a nice equal equal measure of style and substance together oh that sure makes sense. and uh i'm coming in a little lower than you uh, i'm coming in at an even eight but i still feel like an eight is pretty solid like I said, it's just, it's mixtures of Hammer, it's mixtures of uh, Hitchcock, it's mixtures of, you know, Vincent Price era stuff. It's a little bit of the dark half thrown in for good measure. Throw it in the blender, mix it up, and you have I Madman. I was so surprised. I was like, I can't believe how much I am digging the fuck out of this. Now, now I got to ask you one question, though, before we go. But, uh, 
in this movie. There's something that's left kind of, I, I think it's left unresolved. I don't know if you'll agree with me. Do you think that Brand was real and was always there and had uh, planned this out, you know, from his, you know, with the, you know, having his estate sales show up at this bookstore? Or do you think that she brought him into reality by reading the books? That's that's what I that's what I got out of it. See, I thought say, because, same because here's the thing: when you and I were doing the writing 101, I think that something that came up there was like, and and something I think about a lot. I have a lot of books in my home, and I don't necessarily get to read all of them all the time. But sometimes I find myself knowing stuff that's in there, that's in them. And some people say like osmosis and stuff, but I this is the way I think about it: when someone takes the time. And the effort and the soul, blood, sweat, and tears to write something and edit it, rewrite it, edit it, rewrite it, cut things out, put things back in, edit it, finish it. When you spend that much time putting heart and soul, imagination, consciousness into that thing, I love the idea that it imprinted his psyche and his uh, determination so much on this character that just by reading the work that he had taken so much time to write, and maybe did some alchemical stuff, whatever, whatever. That they don't like I said, you can go into that and you can you can totally uh, expound on it. You have no idea. But you put so much work into it and so much of yourself into it that it actually creates this virtual person. So when she reads it, it's almost like do you hear about those experiments where like those people came up with this idea, this backstory of this person, and then they came up with it, they died. And then they had a seance, and then in the seance, this virtual ghost person actually appeared to them and spoke to them. It was a real experiment. Real, real experiments. It was a real experiment to see whether whether or not you could, in your mind, create a spirit that could operate within a seance. Because they're basically trying to prove that seances are are like driven by the psyche rather than a supernatural thing. So they tried to embody this character they had come up with so hard that that through their own psychos or their own psychological um imprint of this person they and he ended up showing up during a seance so they kind of proved what they were talking about but then it started this entirely other entire other problem where they're like how many things are actually brought into existence by us thinking so hard about them so like when i think about that and then I think about you thinking about a character, everything about them, everything they've done, the trauma, the triumph of a person. And you think about it so fucking hard and everything that could happen, everything that they wouldn't do, everything about their character. And then you write it into a book. At what point does that cease being a real thing? Yeah, so exactly. If somebody, that, if somebody if someone reads that, are you imprinting them with what you put on there out of yourself? So that's why I thought Dr. Kessler, he wasn't a human being. He was a being that was made by this other person being him in his mind when he was writing those books. So yeah, she summoned him. That's what I had always got out of it myself, yes. That's definitely the way I see it, especially as like a lifelong reader. That, that's the way I see it full on. And I'm not so sure that a lot of people watching this would even go that far 
but I think that they'd be doing a major disservice if they didn't. I think that the script and the direction ended up being far more complex than they thought it was going to be. And I think that the guy who wrote this, David Chaskin, was the same guy who wrote Nightmare on Elm Street 2, The Curse, and wrote multiple episodes of the series Monsters. Maybe it was monsters that I saw that guy in. The 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 elevator guy from Ghostbusters. But uh, oh, I'm sure he's probably been on it. The guy was on like 140 different TV shows. <laughs> yeah, but at least that didn't happen here. I I totally think that Dr. Kessler deserves to be like in the pantheon of of memorable. And maybe I don't know, man. Like maybe uh maybe just due to my background and the things I've liked to read and the things that I love and, and just reading in general, maybe that's kind of colored my, my view of this, but I just had a rocking good time. I loved, I would love to have a poster that had the Jackal boy and Dr. Kessler in it somewhere like a Drew Struzan. I'm Madman poster. That would be cool. Maybe you could commission something like that one day. It makes me wonder if Mondo has something like that somewhere. I'd like to look around and see, because I would love to have that. I would, too. Hell, I'd love the actual poster for this. Uh, that was just, it's, a good, uh, it's a damn yeah. good... Uh, it's it's a good composition of the poster, too. Yeah. I just think they had, <clears throat> there was so much love and so much style and so much substance. Like, there, there's a lot, you know, and some people might accuse me of seeing shit that isn't there. But I think that we have... I think we've uh, put some evidence as to what we're saying. They can't yeah. do a lot of the stuff we're bringing up, so... Hey, you hey. know, we're, we're just the people that are in the know, as they say. I suppose, yeah. I mean, like, you're talking about Dress to Kill and, and, and the razor slashed across the hand. I mean, I think you can you can bring that in from a bunch of different places, and with Dress to Kill, I mean, that's Brian De Palma, the biggest Hitchcock uh, plagiarist that known to mankind. <laughs> I mean, they, they say homageist, but they're, I mean, no. He's a plagiarist. But, uh-huh. I'd Hey, Raising Kane, that's the best psycho that ever psychoed. Oh, so, yeah. Fucking John Lithgow is a wonder in that movie, man. I, uh, I, although, you know what? He just went to the top of the list for anybody else who could, who could be Dr. Kessler, though. Ooh, I think he could John kill Lithgow it. is Dr. Kessler. That would be interesting. I think he could kill it. But anyway, I think we need, to, we, need, we need to lobby for there to be a reboot of I Madman and starring John Lithgow. I would be down for that. No problem. Yeah. Absolutely. You can watch it for free on Vudu with ads, but um, I watched it on Tubi. But I, don't, I, I used to own it on VHS, but that has been long gone for many years. As far as I'm concerned, if if there are movie reviewers or like genre movie reviewers, you know, third hand repertory uh, reviewers that don't look at Tubi constantly you're a fool too oh, there's like, so much stuff they are one of the best curated streaming things right now it is unreal how much obscure shit is on tubi it blows my mind again i believe every time i go and look on there like they always got new shit i'm like how could they possibly get any more how do they not have everything already well i mean they they do uh, they do jettison stuff, but it seems like they rarely jettison the obscure stuff. They usually jettison the mainstream stuff. I'm a believer. Right on. Well, I was gl- glad I could make a believer out of you. Yeah. 
Well, right on, right on, man. Well, I want to thank you once again for tuning in for one of these, uh, you know, appreciation months. I have no idea which one I'm going to do next. I have many, many ideas, but I have too many to choose from. It's kind of like our without warnings. I have a, I have like 50, 60 different ideas, but choosing which one to do next is going to take some careful decision making. Absolutely. Gotta but again, it. again, thank you, Corey, for coming in, coming in and doing the show. I know it's like, oh, what, about 2 o'clock in the morning where you're at, you know, or 2.30 in the morning. Cause it's, I uh, it, man, I, you know, I, I love it. I, I honestly believe that. If if we had um, if we had little tracks of all the conversations that we have before we actually do the shows, they'd see how much of a love. I mean, they they see it through this stuff, but they if you could see what we talk about, the lengths. Sometimes we have to make sure that we have enough time to even do the show because we're having such a great conversation before or after. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we end up talking for more time almost off the air than we do on the air. <laughs> So if you'd like to have one of those conversations with us, just go to Cameo. No, sorry. <laughs> Cameo. For a mere $269.99, you can, no. Uh, Patreon.com. Uh, with that being said, buddy, thanks once again for coming on the show. Always appreciate it. I love these talks we have. So as we sign off, I just want to say, folks listening at home, if you do like what we do here, continue listening and continue to help us. You want to rate, review, subscribe, like our links, share our links, comment on them, and maybe uh, send us a message and let us know what you want to hear our take on next. It's always appreciated. But as always, folks, you have been listening to Cinema Degeneration's single serving slasher appreciation month. And as always, thank you for listening. Hello, Ann. It's been a long time. Stay away from me. But I fixed it, Anna. What do you mean? Look, a clean slate, a fresh palette. <laughs>